0: Going to continue our series tonight in looking at the subject of covenants, covenant relationships, the Bible's covenants as pictures, visual aids, and such great helps to us in the Christian life. God is a God of covenants, He made covenants, He has kept <coughs> the covenants that He has entered into, and He desires us not lightly but to enter into special, lifelong covenant relationships. We've thought of marriage, we've thought of the picture of covenant in baptism and conversion, and tonight we want to think of it in the context of church membership. What again is a covenant? Just to remind us, a covenant is a binding agreement not something that we necessarily have to write down, but it's a good habit. It's a binding agreement which two parties, two individuals or two groups, take on certain responsibilities. And in exchange for keeping those undertakings, there are many benefits and blessings that come. It's not like a business deal Business deal can be between two people that really have nothing in common. They don't much like each other. They may never see each other again. They may, in fact, never meet. No, a covenant is between two that have a great deal in common, that long to have a lifelong relationship with one another. It's a meaningful relationship, it's not distant. No, it's a close relationship. We think, as we have done, of the Noah covenant that God made with him. He'd never flood the earth again and the rainbow is the sign. We think of Abraham, we think of Moses, we think of all of Israel who God entered into a covenant relationship with. And so he desires to enter into covenant relationships still. We enter these with Christ at conversion. I turn from my sin. I will not live for myself anymore. I will not live for the world anymore. I would be ever, only, all for thee as we sing. Well, that's conversion, baptism. We publicly testify what's already gone on, that I've died to self. And now I live for Christ And that the life that I once had is no more. And now my life is Christ within me. I'm dead to the world. I'm alive to Christ. I'm a blood-bought child of God. So the Lord would long that we don't just stop there. Conversion. Baptism. But we believe it's right and I want to try to prove it to you in a, a different way tonight. To prove that we should go on very rapidly, preferably at the same time, if possible, to become an identified member of a local church. And that's important. Identified. Not just part of the congregation. Not a willing member of the congregation and a friend. But covenanted in a pledge. Having made clear public undertakings that we identify with this local body of blood-bought children. And that's what membership is. What is a local church? We'll define it shortly. It's a geographically defined group of like-minded children of God. It has to be geographically defined. As we shall see, there is what we call the universal church The international church, but of course there is also the local church. A local family that have come and that have identified with one another. They meet for praise, for worship. They attend the means of grace. And God blesses particularly when individuals covenant together. Now we live in a day and age, and this is a subject that much exercises me, We intend to cover it at the Jude Conference in January. Church membership is increasingly seen as optional. You don't need to go to school to learn. You can learn at home nowadays. That's what had to happen during lockdown, but you don't have to go to school. I'm not speaking of homeschoolers, that's fine, but using it as an illustration. You don't have to go to the office to work. You can stay at home or I do my work on a computer. I don't need to relate to my colleagues. Perhaps some people think or some people actually prefer it that way. Maybe there's advantages not having to go to the office and build relationships and to be accountable for your time. But is that right when it comes to the church? Can we be an internet church member willingly when There would be another way. Have the definitions of a church changed? Can we so easily put God's word to one side? Well, let me try to prove church membership to you. Not with the familiar way, as we've done in the past, of looking at the church metaphors, which describe in the family and the building and the flock and the vine and so on, The picture of belonging, of identifying, of being grafted into. The pictures there are so clear. But let me show you a different way. There are only two references in the whole of the four Gospels to the word church. And we've read them. Let's turn to them. Matthew 16. And I want to show you how these two references, and we always have that, principle of interpretation the law of first use but here they are the term is as you know it ecclesia from which we get the word ecclesiastical so the word church is first used in the new testament by the lord jesus christ himself matthew 16 and verse 18 this very well-known verse which many people misinterpret to say that Peter was the first Pope. He wasn't. No, the Lord Jesus says, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, Peter who's going to fall terribly, but the Lord says he will be the apostle upon which the church at Jerusalem will be led, that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what's the reference here? Does this apply to the local church? Clearly not. It's a reference to the whole church. Believers that have ever lived, Old Testament, New Testament, and those that were alive then and that are alive now. This is clearly a reference to the whole of Christ's church and he builds it upon the apostles of which Peter was one. Verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Oh, that's interesting. Does that mean that Peter will have the right to determine who will enter heaven? No. But the gospel, the gospel that opens Men and women and children's hearts will be given first to the apostles who will go and preach. <coughs> and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. When the gospel goes forth and souls are saved and they are loosed from sin and from the earth. Well those will be eternal covenants made. What a great blessing that is. That's the first use of the term church but if you turn over quickly to Matthew 18 and to chapter 17 uh, to, to verse 17 this is a different use of the word church ecclesia and it's so obviously not the international universal church the lord jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross The church hasn't yet, the New Testament church hasn't yet been formed. But he knows it's coming. It's been prophesied from the Old Testament that it will be formed when he's ascended and when the day of Pentecost has come, 50 days after he rose from the dead. The church will be formed and constituted and given that great power and authority on the day of Pentecost and visibly with tongue speaking and prophecy and healing and the gift of the Holy Spirit in every believer's heart and there the church will be built. So what's Christ talking about here when he's teaching the disciples about how to deal with sin in the church? Because the Lord knows. He knows that this church won't be a perfect church because it's made up of you and me. It's made up of sinners. And there'll be problems. So one of the first uses, the second reference to the word ecclesia, is the church will be used to deal with problems between believers. Let's just read it again. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass Against thee. This is speaking about a believer, a brother, and he's sinned. Let's say he said something that was hurtful. Maybe he said something that wasn't fair, wasn't true. Don't think it's necessarily dealing with a moral kind of or immoral sin, but there's a fault. He's spoken harshly. She's said something that was gossipy. It was sharing information, news that wasn't that person's to share. Well, how's it to be dealt with? Well, the first remedy, verse 15, very privately, you go and speak to that sister, that brother, that brother in Christ, and you say, dear sister, you hurt me. You shared things about me that weren't true, and it's come back to me. And hopefully, the brother, the sister says, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. And that's it. The matter's dealt with. It's done. Verse 16. But sometimes we're proud and stubborn. Oh, no, I didn't say that. Well, I might have said something like it. Oh, you have to go a step further. Perhaps it was something quite serious. It was speaking about a marriage in a inappropriate way but if he will not hear thee verse 16 then go and get a witness an independent reliable witness or maybe two and in the mouth of two or three witnesses well who would you choose probably the person that was involved in the gossip that heard what was said very privately you take and have a private meeting and you say Dear sister, here's the witness. This is what you said. This is what you said to him, to her. And if you've got three or four people perhaps, usually the truth will be established. Did you say that? I did. Did you hear that? I did. And hopefully the problem can be resolved. But there's a third level. Sometimes sin is so... Serious And people are so much in denial. They don't want to admit their faults to one another. Don't want to admit their faults. When there's even a witness present. <coughs> go and tell it to the church. Well, who is the church? Is it everybody? Oh, go and broadcast it on the internet. Somebody gossiped about me. Of course it doesn't mean everybody. It means... Just exactly what the word ecclesia means. Called out ones. Ones who've heard the call of Christ to turn from sin, to repent. And the Lord has saved them, washed them, cleansed them. They're now new creatures. In their heart, they want to walk God's way. And so, what happens? You bring this matter to the church, probably first to the pastor, to the officers. But, verse 17, if he neglect to hear the church. You try to keep it as discreet as possible. We don't want to parade problems. Hopefully we can deal with 99.9% of problems before they become public. But if he neglect to hear the church, this man, this woman, it's like a heathen man. It's like somebody in the world that doesn't really deal with sin. Well, I'm coming at this. I'm not really teaching about how we deal with sin. I'm using it as an example that Christ lays down the principle of what a local church is. How can you take it to the church unless we know who's in the church and who's out of the church? Do we take it to everybody in Bedford? Do we take a problem... To everybody that comes on a Sunday morning or evening and say, come on, we're going to have a meeting. No, there'll be unbelievers there. They can't be involved. We don't want to tell them of problems between believers that haven't been resolved. No, we want to keep it to just the people of God, the people within the family. What's that expression? Family business only, F-B-O so where there's sin involved, if you can't deal with it with level one, with level two, we take it to the church, probably the offices, and then the wider church, and if the problem then can't be dealt with, then there has to be discipline. But that's a different subject. So that's church membership, and Christ is teaching this in the second use that he makes of the word ecclesia, church. One of only two references in the whole of the Gospels to the church. Isn't that quite striking? It's mentioned again and again and again in Acts. You can study that another time. Tell it to the church, says the Lord Jesus Christ. That body of people who have covenanted together, who are identified, probably a register, a role. You know who's in, who's out. And those individuals are the gathered, called out ones, called by Christ as the church. Secondly, why did Christ form a church? Does he need a church? Not really. He could do the work with no church. He could just individually call believers and then leave them as orphans. And leave them with no discipline, with no care, with no mutual love. He could do that, but that's not the heart of God, is it? God wants us to be in families. He wants children to be brought up in families. That's one of the great ills of the age. And he wants believers to be brought up in families and not be orphans. Not be lone riders, as we call it. So three reasons. The word of God teaches this. I won't prove it. Why does he form the church? Firstly, for the salvation of souls. Because the church, as we looked in Matthew 16, has the commission to go out with the keys of the kingdom to preach the gospel. Secondly, he brings us into a family, into a church, so that we might be perfected. Justification happens In a moment. We're made right with God. sanctification happens over time. It's a process. And we need all the help we can get. Prayer meetings, Bible studies. The encouragement, the challenge of one another. And so he forms the church for the perfecting of the saints. Thirdly, isn't the church supposed to be glorious? Isn't the church supposed to be A place where people come in and say, see how they love one another. See how those that love the Lord met often with one another. The church is glorious. Look at us. A group of unloving, sinful, uncaring, selfish individuals. That's what we were. And what are we now? We're on a journey to being perfected. We're laying aside the selfishness. We're thinking more of each other than we do of ourselves. We're thinking of eternity. We're thinking of the gospel. We're standing up for truth. That's for his glory. That's for Christ's glory. Who's in? Who's out of the church? Well, we shall... Look at that now. How do you join a church? I've got down five points. It's not really an exhaustive list, but I think they're very obvious. First of all, you cannot join a church in New Testament times. The Old Testament was different. It was a mixed multitude. That's so clear. But in the New Testament regenerate converted believers only you first must be a believer so what do we look for when somebody comes before the church has this man or woman had a real experience of conversion is there the evidence there that they're a new creature is their testimony consistent with what we see and we observe in their life was there a before and an after are they now Evidently, the Lord's people, that's the first thing. Secondly, they've got to be open about their faith. Maybe they're still a secret believer. They've never professed. They do believe. They do have peace in their heart. But they've not publicly told people, been willing to read or to give their testimony. They're not yet known as believers. They are secret believers. So there needs to be a profession and it needs to be an open profession. But thirdly, they need to be walking with the Lord. What would happen if we were to bring somebody into the church? And maybe they'd been converted but they were living in a compromise way. I won't give you examples of how but... Perhaps they had a career or job that wasn't really suitable for a believer. The type of work they were doing was really not something a believer would do. It's promoting something that's against God's word and his truth. And so we have to gently say to them, well, maybe that occupation which prevents you from worshipping. You're not a nurse or a doctor or something where you should and have to work on the Lord's day, but you're choosing not to meet with the Lord's people. And the Lord says, remember the Sabbath day. So the person must be walking uprightly. Fourthly, they've got to believe what we teach. That would be a disaster, wouldn't it? If somebody came into the church and they believed something completely different and they went round the church and it was a contamination they taught that you could be saved and then lose your salvation. They taught that you could believe parts of the Bible, but if you don't like Genesis, just leave it to one side. That wouldn't be good, would it? That's why we have to have a statement of faith, a 1689 Baptist confession of faith. We have to write down the things that we believe. Sometimes we have to add to that because there's new issues to stand for. And then fifthly, there's what I call the two golden rules. And the reverse is to back this up. I don't want anybody to come as a member of this church unless they agree to the two golden rules. Ephesians 5, 21. That we would be subject to to one another we're all equal i have to submit myself to every other member of the church and i would hope and trust that everybody would be submitted to me not because i'm the pastor but because i'm a fellow church member <coughs> ephesians 5:21 i'm not going to turn to it but you can look it up and then there's a second golden rule that we need to be submissive to those that have the rule over us. Hebrews 13:17. These are absolutely the bare minimum. The picture is of a family. You've got parents in a family. If the children won't honour, respect the parents, the family won't function. You won't know when to eat, when to go on holiday. You won't know how to manage the money. It would be a disaster. But within a family, the father has to respect the youngest child. The youngest child is as important as the father. There's an equality in a sense. And so these are the two golden rules. Subject to one another and subject to those that have the rule over us. And If we follow and keep those two golden rules, we will have a family where there's great love great mutual respect for one another problems that will occur will be dealt with because we'll have love and respect for the other well i want in the time that we have to ask this question what makes church membership a covenant is it not just A loose undertaking, it's the church I go to and yes, they want me to become a member, although I've never asked anybody to become a member of this church. It should be willing and voluntary. But is it a loose thing or is it something more permanent? Go back to the picture of the family. You're either in or you're out. You're either a blood-bought child or... You're an orphan and you're adopted into the family. So, what makes it a covenant? And we have to go back here, as people have done over the centuries, to a man called Benjamin Keach. He was born in Buckingham, Buckinghamshire. He lived in the 1600s, 333 years ago this year. He wrote what became known as Keach's Family Covenant. He was a predecessor to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and this document that he wrote in 1689, the same year as the Baptist Confession of Faith, became famous in independent and congregational churches. This is how Keach defines a church and I believe this is thoroughly biblical. He says this, A true church is a number of godly persons, godly, they're called out ones, ones that God has changed and is working within their hearts. They, in a holy covenant, a pledge, have given themselves to the Lord and to one another. Do you get? It's the golden rules, isn't it? They are no longer living for themselves. The church that they join won't be about their preferences all the time. Because we all have preferences, don't we? And not everybody can have their way all the time. They have given themselves up to the Lord and to one another. That's the two more important things than self. They are a body of believers pursuing Unity. It's what we want in a family, isn't it? Who wants to be in a family that's divided? Where one says this and the other says that and we don't know what to believe. A body of believers pursuing unity who love one another, the family relationship. They pursue godly lives where the word is preached and the sacraments, the Lord's table, baptism, are rightly administered. Let me read that to you again. It's too important not to. A church is a number of godly persons, who, in a holy covenant, have given themselves up. I've surrendered. No longer is it about me. No longer it is about my life and my preferences for colour and preferences for this, that, and the other. Now it's about the Lord, and it's about one another. It's a body of believers pursuing unity, who love one another, who are pursuing godly lives where the word is preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. Now just contrast that to what we have so often today. And I'm not thinking of any church in particular. I'm thinking about the evangelical church consumerist society where church is like the supermarket you go in, you choose the shelf that you want to go to, you take what off, off what you want if you don't like it you leave it behind and when you've run out you come back again that's not a church that might be the modern church or you can even do it online now, don't have to go to the shop, just put your order in And it will be delivered to you. That's not the church. Fast food Christianity. A sort of hit and run approach. That's not Christ's church. Well let's ask another question. Must the church be perfect? If I'm to join the church, must it be perfect? The answer is obviously no. Because if you join and I join, it won't be perfect. But secondly we won't all agree on everything. Do you know even the pastor of a church won't agree with everything? Because a church is organic. It's a combination of the tradition of that particular church, I mean, tradition with a small t, of the conventions of that particular area and the history. It's a combination of who's gone before, and what truths they understood and what they didn't. It's a a combination of whether the church is being reformed or whether it's a church that's really made headway in being more biblical. Oh, a church is a complex thing. It's organic. It's moving. It's growing. So I will never find a perfect church. But it must be a church that preaches the word of God must be a bible believing church must be a gospel preaching church must be a christ honoring church but it may be they lay out the chairs in a different way than your preference i'm being slightly trite it may be the color of the curtains isn't quite to your taste you know what i mean it may be the times of the meetings you'd prefer they were slightly different or this or that the fundamentals must be there but if it was all about my preferences and my desires, this would be a self-serving church. And a church should be a Christ-serving, Christ-honouring church of believers who have submitted to Christ and to one another. Yes, we can reform, we can change, we can develop. Churches have to move To meet the needs of the time and the needs of the population and the opportunities and doors that open up before them. Well, Keech had eight different ways of showing how we have covenant obligations. I'm going to cover these very briefly. When you become a church member, he said, your first covenant is this. I am to walk in all holiness, Godliness, humility, and brotherly love. That's an obligation upon me. That's what I've got to do. And if I do that, I will find great blessing through being humble, unholy, and ungodly. And Secondly, he said that we have a duty to one another, one another to watch over our conversation. That word conversation is, in those days, meant the way we lived our lives. We're to watch over one another. Now be careful. We're not to go prying or doing a social media audit or checking on what this, that and the other is in, within a person's home. No. But we are, if we see a significant concern or issue, we're to be willing to be entreated by a fellow believer. If somebody was to fall into sin, a bad friendship or relationship or something that's grievous and obvious, we should be able to talk to one another within a family and to be entreated. A church, thirdly, he says, is a place where we pray for one another. We have a dear young lady about to have an operation next week. Sure, she'll be on our hearts In the coming weeks, it would be unnatural within a family if we weren't concerned, prayerfully, for her. That's what a family would do, isn't it? Wouldn't we have a concern for one another? Somebody falls ill. I want to know, have they recovered? Somebody's witnessing to a friend or a family member. Oh, can I pray? So Keach says we... Pray for one another. Fourthly, extension of this, a church has a covenant obligation amongst its members to bear one another's burdens. Somebody has a particular trial. Their wife has to be away from them for work for an extended period. We want to provide hospitality, care, love. Somebody has a child, maybe not a child, and... Maybe they've got a particular affliction. We want to pray for them and care for them and show concern. Fifthly, he says, we're to bear one another's weaknesses. Oh, how much we need to do that. Because we're all weak, we all have failings memory, being thoughtful rather than impulsive. We bear with one another's weaknesses and people are put-it-out-there kind of people. Others find it difficult to communicate. We bear with our weaknesses and failings with much tenderness, Keech says, not discovering any of them to the church. We don't amplify somebody's weakness. That would be to damage the cause. Sixthly, he says we're to covenant together to strive to promote truth, the truth of the gospel, the purity of God's ways and his ordinances. Seventhly, we're to meet together as often and on as many opportunities as we can on the Lord's day and at all other times as the Lord gives us opportunity. And finally he says, and I hardly mention this one, According to our ability, we are to communicate to our pastor. The word communicate, then, doesn't mean speak. It means to care for, encourage, support. I think he probably had financial means in mind, or giving of food, or something like that. But what he means is we should be in regular contact, caring, supporting, sharing, Telling of an encouragement or of a difficulty or a problem. God having ordained that person to preach. That's what Keech says. That's the family covenant. You see how involved it is? And isn't it so biblical? You could prove all of those points with numerous texts. So, that's the obligations. Just to close. What are the blessings? Because there are so many blessings. Blessings. There are far more blessings than there are obligations and undertakings that we make. The first, obviously, is if you join a church, and I believe that's right, and no believer should for very long not be a, believer, a, a member of a church, the first blessing is this. It's a great stimulus for sanctification. Because all of a sudden I willingly put myself under the eyes and the accountability of one another. And as I consider other people's afflictions and burdens, it helps me to be (coughs) thankful. I become aware of what's going on in the church. And that helps me to grow in grace and to become more like my saviour. You know those... Three verses that tell us what is the will of God, that we should love one another, that we should be thankful, and that we should be sanctified, for this is the will of God. Secondly, a blessing, we can access all of the means of grace. Why do we guard the table? We guard the table, the Lord's table, because we only want believers to come. We only want believers who are walking in faith, uprightly. And we only want believers who've been willing to submit themselves to other believers in a church covenant. When we become a member of a church rightly, we can attend the Lord's table and the means of grace, which is surely one of, if not the highest privilege that we have as a believer. Thirdly, we have the prayer, the care, the love and the mutual support. I sometimes grapple with this. Every day I have to work out how do I spend my time as a pastor. Do I do this, this, this? Do I think more of members or less of congregants? Difficult. Where do you put your time? You could spend it all on one person who never attends the means of grace who's never submitted to the church (coughs) or you could spread your time but there's great blessing when we're part of the church fourthly we're willing to be under the moral, spiritual care and oversight of the pastor the elders, the officers of the church, fifthly Normally, it's members that get the privilege of serving. Now, that's not always possible in a smaller church. Sometimes we let people do things that are not members, and that has to be done that way, but it would be much better if all the main functions were undertaken by those who've bound together, who've publicly professed faith. They will have the opportunity and the responsibility to serve Christ and others. Sixthly, we can be involved in the full life of the church, the appointment of officers, a pastor, accepting new members and hearing their testimonies, the key decisions, the governance of the church, to an extent, if you're not a member It wouldn't be right. I I don't expect people down my street to tell me what should go on within my family, within my home. And even visitors that come to the home, they shouldn't tell us what to cook and how to clean and everything else. But the members, the family, that's their responsibility. But maybe there's a final covenant blessing and privilege that comes with church membership. When you're a member of a church, You have this incredible opportunity to hear all the marvels and the wonders of grace and the answers to prayer that sometimes we can only share with those who've covenanted together. We see the triumphs and the trophies of grace. We see the answers to prayer. We pray and we see answers coming. What a privilege that is. How strengthening for faith to see these things as a member of the family within a church. Well, as we conclude, sadly there's a level of Christian individualism today. That's not what the Lord wants. We're just humble servants, part of the wider family, but geographically recognised Is no church good enough for them? Are they still looking? Or are they waiting till they find the perfect church? You'll never find it. That perhaps they're not willing to be accountable. To put themselves under, hopefully not, but the discipline of a church. Or maybe they're not willing to share the burdens. Join the cleaning rota do the drinks after a service or maybe they're not willing to identify as being a member of that church yes we're not perfect we're sinners saved by grace but perhaps that's the reason they don't want to be identified don't want to be known but church membership is a wonderful covenant god made kept and loves covenants And he wants us to be in a covenant relationship with himself and with a local church. Well, may the Lord help us in these things. We're going to sing our.